As part of Ferrari Fridays, William Ross from the Exotic Car Marketplace will be discussing all things Ferrari and interviewing people that live and breathe the Ferrari brand. Topics range from road cars to racing, drivers to owners, as well as auctions, private sales, and trends in the collector market. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the uh, second episode of the Ferrari Marketplace. Today, we're going to talk about the Ferrari 250 GTO. You know, the um, the unicorn, the uh, quintessential Ferrari, so to speak, out there in the Ferrari world and the Ferrari Marketplace. The one to own, unless, as long as you're a billionaire. But... Real quick, you know, sorry to take a little bit to get the second episode up and going. Um, I kind of reviewed that first one, and I knew that first one was going to be a little rough because, hey, it's the first one I did. So I kind of was tightening some things up and put some more things together to try and make this a little more fluid and sound a little bit better. So hopefully this one goes a little bit better. So, But anyways, onward and upward, let's talk about the 250 GTO. So 60 years ago in 1962, the uh, Ferrari 250 GTO was – Unleashed on the world. Now, but the how this car came about was in prior to the uh, you know sixty one you know season prior net the FIA for the world championship. You no, know, you could race you know have a actually you know built specifically sports racing prototype car to run for the world championship. Well, for nineteen sixty two, the FIA decided to say, you know what we're going to make these a actually a homologated road going Grand Touring car GT car. Now, those will be the ones that will only be uh, viable for points in the championship. So, you know, Enzo saw us say, hey, we need to uh, come up with some new cars here that's going to be for this. So, at the time, they really only had was a 250 uh, SWB was what they kind of had that would fit the bill. Well, that wasn't going to work, so they needed to change it up. So, his man, Mr. Bizzarini, um, and I apologize if I hack up some of these names. I'm not Italian. So, anyways... He got to work on it, his little skunk works operation there in fried fried Ferrari and started putting stuff together. Now, the rumor has it, you know, okay, that, you know, there was really no one specific person that was responsible for the body shape and designing the 250 GTO. Now, there were never any drawings done, nothing put to paper, no schematic, nothing. They just kind of, they put this thing together just with using their hands, metal, and just, hey, let's just do this, tweak this and whatnot. But throughout the years, it's kind of been, I would say rumor has it or, or come down that possibly that actually uh, Enzo's uh, wind tunnel uh, model maker guy, Edmondo Milimetor Casoli, was actually kind of one of the major contributors to the shape and design of the car. Now, like I said, he's never really gotten direct credit, but in reading stuff like that, and you talk to people, and back then you read enough stuff, it seems like it seems to be that he was like the biggest contributor to the shape and design of this car. Because as you know, that shape is nice, it's beautiful, and aerodynamic, and going so. Hey, someone that builds models for the wind tunnel, I guess, would be the man. Kind of uh, would do it. So, but anyways, you know. Um, you know, Bizzarini's team, and he started out, but as we all know, in 1961, the big old Palace Revolt happened, and along Bizzarini, along with uh, other some other top-line uh, engineers and conciliaries, I guess you could say, were sent packing. Um, they were not happy about 
Enzo's wife coming out on the shop floor and kind of telling them what to do and all this stuff. And they're basically like, look, either she goes or we go. And, well, I guess we know who won. Enzo's wife won. So those guys all left. So it was basically kind of turned over to a 26-year-old Mario Fogheri. And he had to pick up the pieces and kind of get moving on this and do it. So him and the other guys that you know, got brought in that team that were still there and some new people that brought in, you know, ended up, you know, putting this thing all back together and, you know, getting it completed. Um, what's kind of surprising is, you know, usually uh, Pininfarina was the one that was going to be designed, especially the road cars, but uh, they really had no influence or anything on this. Um, it was all done in-house, and like I said, it was just – you know, hammered and welded together without a single drawing or scale model. Nothing was ever drawn on paper or something. So it was, it was pretty impressive. Um, so, uh, you know, as we know, designer, coach, builder, you know, Sergio Scaglietti, you know, he, he inherited and he got the final shape and tweaked and everything like that and going. So that's who kind of got every, got this thing, you know, to the finish line and regarding to get this thing all taken up. Um, kind of an interesting story regarding how the 250 GTO name came about because as we know that it was actually derived from the 250 swb and you know and that was one of the things there were 100 cars were supposed to, needed to be made to uh, appease the fia and doing it and as we know enzo and his in his way was able to i guess sway or you know get the FIA to agree the fact is well this is just the 250 SWB with tweaks and you know changes and whatnot you know other competitors other manufacturers all kind of livid about it but hey that's the kind of power and sway he had so they um were able to do it but what happened was is when they were getting ready to uh when they did the registration for the first race it actually got sent over you know it's official it was a 250 GT competition 62 Berlinetta you know, or, you know, it became known as the 250 Grand Turismo Amalgado. But when it got registered uh, for that first race over in the United States, it was actually put down a paper. And now it's kind of unknown. There's a couple different things for this, you know, um, either due to a kind of a language barrier because telephones back then and, and doing whatnot for and paperwork and not be able to understand the handwriting and whatnot. It was, it was supposed to be entered as, you know, 250GT-O. But somehow, either either there's two stories. One is just through subsequent, you know, um, language barriers. It just they put GTO, or the other story is a a secretary typist, whoever was you know handling all the entries and whatnot, just dropped a hyphen and just made it GTO. So there you go. Because so it was never actually designated from Ferrari as 250 GTO. It actually became that through a clerical error or through a language barrier issue. So I always thought that was kind of funny and interesting about that, how it came about. And that's, you know, just a few other stories about that, how those cars came about and got their name. I mean, look at the Daytona. That, that car was never officially called the Daytona from Ferrari. It was just because of the uh, winning the race, the, the 24 hours of Daytona, and it just kind of stuck. So anyways, but so it's got a couple of those instances in there. So anyways, now with that season, so what they did is, you know, to get things moving um, there's on record, I, I, you know, and there's another argument that kind of gets kind of uh, tossed around and is there were some say 36, some say 39, you know, it all depends on how you look at it. Cause the last three is they kind of all of a sudden considered a 330 GTO cause it's got the four liter engine and it's got the series two bodywork. 
So another say, okay, and then there's the 36 that are actually true GTOs because they have the original three liter engine and three liter V12 and the original bodywork. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of, it's up in the air, you know, because like I said, you know, they did the, they had the series one bodywork and then they did the subsequent series two bodywork ones. And, you know, as you can tell, when you look at them, you can clearly tell between the series one and series two. The Series 2 bodywork is a lot more aerodynamic. It's a lot, you know, it looks more squatty little and longer and a little wider. You know, you can definitely tell the difference between the two. So that's why that argument's made is some people say, well, it's not really a 250 GTO because it has a bigger engine, a totally different body, whatnot. But I say, no, it is because it's basically just a continuation of it. So it's, you know, however you want to look at it. In my opinion, hey, they're all GTOs, you know, and they're all just absolutely gorgeous. So... That, that's my opinion. You know, I said, you're going to get that argument amongst other people. So, you know, because like I said, some people say 36, some say 39. I say 39, but hey, that's me. So anyways, so right out of the gate, you know, these things were super competitive. You know, these things were doing phenomenal. Um, you know, solid car, very reliable. You know, it was very easy to drive. You know, it was you know, a great car to compete in. Because you got to remember, in back then for the World Championship races, you know, you weren't just driving, you know, doing a 250-mile you know, race on a you know, road course or whatnot. You know, back then for the championship, you had, you know, endurance races. You know, you had 24-hour races. You had three-hour races, you know, all these endurance races. You had hill climbs. Um, you had these rallies. You know, you had the 10-day Tour de France race. That's, you know, 10 days over is the whole race. You know, doing all these little things, you know, that, that you know, if you look up the history of that race, it consisted of all these different, uh, recce's and whatnot, you know, that you had to do for the race, you know, to win the whole thing. So, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, how the championship was, you know, I guess won because you had to be disciplined in a lot of different facets of racing a car, not just, hey, going around a track for, you know, two, three hours and doing it. So I always had great respect for those guys back then. That's because of the fact is that's what it is. I mean, you had to be – I want to say dominant, but you had to be pretty, pretty good in all types of dirt, all, all different disciplines of racing. So, you know, and, you know, that first year, I think it was, you know, they won uh, pretty much a majority of the races. So they won the championship and they went again. They, they actually won it in 62, 63 and 64. So they won three years going. So, but the problem is by that time, you know, in 64, the writing was coming on the wall because that's when old Carroll Shelby came storming in with his Cobras and, you know, hell-bent on wanting to beat Ferrari because he just despised Enzo um, and doing it. So, actually, after the 1964 season, now going to 65, yeah, they were all, you know, uh, still raced. The GTOs were still raced, but all under privateer teams. You know, Ferrari didn't have any more factory efforts regarding that back in the 250 GTO on the factory level after the 64 season. And just left all the privateers. And subsequently, you know, Carroll Shelby ended up winning and decimating, you know, blowing doors off uh, with his Daytona Coupes um, in the 65 season. And, you know, those were phenomenal cars, too. And that's a totally different podcast. So, anyways, you know, these cars, you know, as people say, you know, they're not, you know, they're beautiful whatnot. They're not perfect. They're, they're pretty straightforward. I mean, if you ever look at them, they have no even, don't even have any side mirrors on them. You know, and, and, you know, I was saying, you know, as Enzo thought was, well, who cares behind you? I'm always going forward and I'm in first place. Who cares behind me? So, anyways, none of those GTOs, they have any side mirrors, which I always find was kind of interesting. You know, um, 
So in getting to it, but, you know, so as a subsequent, you know, into the later 60s, the GTO, I mean, it was just, it was becoming a old, tired racing car. So, I mean, obviously, you know, if someone can see the future, everyone would be billionaires, right? Um, you know, so no one's going to think to themselves, oh, this car is going to be worth, you know, 30, 40, 70 million dollars someday. Um, you know, it, that doesn't enter your mind. You don't think you just look at it as an old tire race car. Now, these cars were, you know, designed and built to be driven on the street, you know, be a street, you know, it's a regular driving car, daily driving car, and then drive to the track, race, and drive home with it. Um, could you do that? Yeah, can you drive it on the street? But it was a bit of a tricky wicket to drive these cars. You know, you got to get that thing above 3,500 RPM to really start getting the thing kind of moving. Anything below 3,500, I mean, that thing just doesn't want to go. It's just like, you know, so you got to kind of get that thing up in the rev range to really get that thing moving. Um, so it was a bit of a tricky wicket, and said in, in traffic, whatnot, overheat, what thing. It needs the airflow going to it. I mean, the car was designed to be a race car, but it, it, for homologation reasons, yeah, it was still a street car technically. So, but you know, you need that airflow going to the car to really kind of get that thing cooled down and do what it's supposed to do and get that thing all nice and lively. So, a lot now, a lot of people would do it now. Obviously, I think the uh, the one person that's kind of most famous for driving that around is. Um, uh, our old Phil Spector driving it around in California. He was well known for that and driving it very fast and just being an idiot. Um, but, you know, there's really not too many stories of, you know, a lot of sites and what. I know there's one guy that's a movie producer that owns one that, you know, he ended up buying it because he had seen it when he was young. And he's like, I want to buy that car someday. You know, um, you know seeing, and again, it's driving in California. I mean, I don't know where else you might see these things back then. But anyways, you know, by that time, though, late 6 or 7, I mean, these things were changing. I mean, there was the one instance, you know, the guy, you know, bought it as a privateer. He raced, you know, he bought it for like 10 grand, um, you know, raced it whatnot for a few years. And then by the time he was done, he sold it for $3,600. I think it was in 67 or 68, something like that, 66 maybe. Um, but anyways, imagine that. Well, of course, you know, you look at the dollar exchange, you know, okay, what $3,600 was back, you know, compared to today. So what, mid-20s maybe, mid-30s? Would that be a rough thing? I mean, I don't know. I'm not a financial person. But anyways, I mean, even, you know, back then, 3600 bucks was still a decent amount of money. But, no, shit, I mean, even 10 grand was. But, you know, these things being, I think, newer are 18 grand technically in, um, in dollars and cents. But, um, you know, it just it wasn't what, you know, people look at it as today. It was just looking at the tire race car. So these things were trading hands, you know, getting sold for very little money. Um, there's one that was sitting behind. It was in a, it, it was in a field, I said, but I think it, um, the one was it was sitting for 15 years in a field behind a shop class because some guy that owned it was a race car guy, you know, racing guy, and he was done with it. So he just donated it to the local, uh, uh, what the hell would you call it, machine shop or technical school, you know, and do it. And it just sat back there forever because – they really couldn't do anything with it because where were they going to get parts for it? So, but anyway, so, but anyways, subsequently, obviously it was bought and redone. And I believe that's the one that Ralph Lauren owns, uh, was that one that was found in that field. So, um, or sat in that field for that long a time. So, I mean, and, and here's the thing is all of, all of them are accounted for and majority of them are driven and raced on a regular basis at vintage events, which is awesome. I was just down at Cavallino, uh, a few weeks back, and there were three of them there at that show. And what's awesome about Cavallino is the fact is, is 
you know, a lot of these shows you go to and those kind of cars, I mean, when you talk about what they're worth, you know, they're behind velvet ropes. And so you, you, the closest you get to them is about five feet. Well, which is awesome about Cavalino is they're parked there. You can get right up to it. You look right in the windows of them, everything like that. And, you know, when they're getting judged, they start them up. It's awesome. I, I got to tell you, if you get the opportunity, now tickets aren't cheap. It's $250 a ticket to go. But I, if you're a Ferrari person and you love Ferraris, you need to put that on your bucket list of things to do is go to the Cavalino Classic down in Palm Beach. Um, and it's in the end of January uh, usually is how they do it. But it's usually it's a four-day event. Um, now, I mean, they have subsequent other things going on, but Saturday is the, you know, the good day where everything's out in the field and they do all the judging and everything like that. But you want to see some of the most gorgeous Ferraris you'll ever see. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, this year was great because, you know, being this is the 75th anniversary of Ferrari, they had one model from every year. Now, they had some years they had multiple models for that year, but um, they had at least one model from every year, and there were some just absolutely drop-dead gorgeous, gorgeous vehicles. I mean, look up online, go on there, and look for videos of it. I got a couple of real short ones on there from being there. Um, I felt a little odd kind of trying to shoot video because you got some very, very high-net-worth individuals walking around, and I wasn't sure about people wanting to be on film or not. So, and I didn't want to have to go, hey, can you sign off this? Are you okay with this? You know, so I didn't want to bother with that. So I only did a couple real quick ones. Um, but anyways, so obviously as time passes on and get going, you know, these things start increasing in value and, you know, going up and the, the prices start getting up there. Like in the 80s, um, you know, people start paying more and more for these cars and getting up there. And, you know, first it's, hey, all right, first time it breaks, you know, a million dollars. And then I think the one was it sold for like a, at back then I think it was eighties something. Can't remember exact. Um, I can't read my own notes. Um, it was you know sold for about a million dollars. And two years later, they sold for like four point two. So and this was in the late eighties, mid to late eighties. Um, and then now subsequently starts going up because it's kind of one of those deals. You know something starts going like that, the marketplace is going to start dictating it. So all of a sudden, oh, it sells for that. Okay, so the one I own should sell for that. Now, here's the one thing about the cars. Now, a lot of them have, you know, different histories to them uh, and whatnot, you know, uh, accidents, crashing, everything like that. Now, like the one, you know, so far, the highest sale one that went to our man, Mr. McNeil, that owns WeatherTech, you know, so rumor has it, he's never confirmed or denied it, that, you know, he paid $70 million for his back in 2018 in a private sale. But now his had Le Mans history, and uh, I mean, I think it was, you know, unmolested, you know, I think it never, no accident damage. I mean, you might have some little things, things here, but never like any structural, like huge crashes. Because um, you got quite a few out there. And these were race cars. You know, they were raced hard. And, you know, they're going to subsequently have damage to them. And it's going to happen. You know, so there's some out there that aren't worth quite as much. And there's the one that sold, was it 26, or uh, was it the one just sold recently? I think. You know, it was like for it went for forty some million, but that, that was at the auction um, at Sotheby's. I think it was Sotheby's or Gooding, one of the two. Um, actually, the person who drove it was killed in it, so it actually kind of got that kind of history, and it was banged up pretty good. Um, but still, you know, it still went for quite a bit of money. Um, so it really doesn't deter people, but you know, it gets you in that club because you have quite a few of the owners of these have owned them for quite a lengthy period of time. Um, you know, it's they. I mean, obviously, they, they love the car. They love what it does and what it is. And, you know, and there's numerous, numerous private 
events just for the GTO owners that go on throughout the year um, here and there that, you know, it's a, to go to it, you got to own a 250 GTO. So, you know, you got these real, you know, obviously upscale private, you know, very private. And if you remember that club, hey, you know what, kudos to you. So obviously you were doing something right in life or as subsequently some of these people that have bought them um, were, they have born into the ripe gene pool. Um, so anyways, my thoughts on this, you know, I mean, I love the car and like that. I mean, you know, they're trying to, they're, they're saying that it's more than likely, you know, and how long and whatnot, but these will be $100 million cars. That's what the rumor is. That's what people are saying. They're saying, you know, how long would it be? In 10 years, 20 years? Who knows? Um, you know, it's getting to the point, though, it's going to be interesting because quite a few of the owners, especially long-term owners that have had them, they're, you know, up there in age. And with what's going on regarding, you know, estate tax, all that kind of stuff, when you pass these things on, you know, the family members, you know, unless it's, you know, a hugely wealthy family, just they can't absorb, you know, the uh, inheritance tax, estate tax, what have you, however it goes. I mean, I know these people, the rich, you know, they got ways to work around it. They set up these trusts and do that kind of crap. But some of these people just might not be able to keep it just because they just they can't afford it. So they turn around and they have to sell it. And then a nice amount of the money, you know, obviously goes to pay taxes. So, which kind of sucks. So it's going to be interesting, though, because I said there's quite a few um, owners that are getting to the stage in life that, you know, they're going to be passing on. And so it's going to be interesting to see if they come to market, or they stay in the family, or if the kids get it, and then they just do sell it. Because you see that quite a bit in this market, um, you know, not just in Ferraris, but in any kind of collector car, hypercar marketplace that um, is the younger generation. They're just not into cars. You know, you have a lot of these gentlemen that have these great collections and whatnot, and the family, the kids, the younger generations want nothing to do with it. So they've got to figure out what to do with the stuff. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here in the next, say, five to ten years with some of these. Like you said, some of these people are getting up there in age. Um, it's, going to be, it's going to be an interesting out in the marketplace to see what happens and see how this comes about. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what plays out. So, But I, I think I, I kind of want to mention the one probably – I don't want to say he's most famous, but one of my most favorite guys that owns one of these is our, our man, the, the drummer from Pink Floyd, Mr. Mason. Um, he's owned his since 78. And there's a, there's a great story behind his is when they're, what was it, 86, 87, when they were going to, you know, obviously come back and go back on tour, they needed to come up with the money for it. And he actually put up his GTO, its collateral, to the bank so they could get the money you know, the money needed up front to get the tour up and going. So he actually put it up as collateral for that. That's awesome. Um, that shows you what the values back then and how they looked at it. So that was able to get them up and going and get what they needed to do. But he races his all the time. He's very, very active in the Ferrari world with his GTO. And there's a great video that came out just a little bit ago. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but, you know, Kid in, uh, was it kid in the Candy Shop, Kid in the Sweet Shop, something like that. It was a Jody Kid. She has her own, you know, YouTube uh, channel that she does, and she goes around and talks to people. But she went and saw, and what was awesome, it wasn't Nick himself, it was his wife that she actually went and she met with. And then uh, she took the, Nick's wife took the GTO out, and Jody took out 
250 SWB, I think it was. Uh, and they follow each other once they're in it. But I thought that was awesome. And tell you what, she tore in. She's a, she's a heck of a racer herself in her own right. I mean, she can she can put it to it. So kudos to her. I, lo- I love seeing that, um, seeing that it's involved. And I know his kids, you know, get involved too big time in, with doing all the historic racing and that because he's got several other cars that he also owns um, in that. So kudos to him. But anyways, it kind of gives you a uh, kind of a brief synopsis of my thoughts and everything and history on the GTO. And I think, you know, where things might be going. Um, I'm, I'm sure I could probably talk for hours on this if I get something else, you know, talking about it. We could talk forever on these things and all the stories and everything about it. But I just kind of wanted to get into a little brief brief on it, just kind of thing, just because, hey, it's the 60th anniversary of it getting uh, leashed, unleashed out onto the world, into the racing world, and history being made. So that's what I wanted to talk about. So, hey, guys, I really appreciate it. And, again, uh, you know, I'm saying I'm – trying to get the hang of this and getting these things put together correctly in these podcasts. So my apologize he's being a little rough and maybe my talking not as smooth as it needs to be um, and doing some ums a lot and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm working on it. So you got to give me a little time. So, but again, Hey, I appreciate you guys listening and take care and stay safe. This episode has been brought to you by grand touring motorsports as part of our motoring podcast network. For more episodes like this, tune in each week for more exciting and educational content from organizations like the Exotic Car Marketplace, The Motoring Historian, Brake Fix, and many others. If you'd like to support Grand Touring Motorsports and the Motoring Podcast Network, sign up for one of our many sponsorship tiers at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. Please note that the content, opinions, and materials presented and expressed in this episode are those of its creator, and this episode has been published with their consent. If you have any inquiries about this program, please contact the creators of this episode via email or social media, as mentioned in the episode.